If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. At the beginning of this period, for reasons I'll talk about in a minute, Japan has the chance to almost press the reset button on its history and its culture, and it's just fascinating what it does with that opportunity. That was Christopher Harding talking about the creation of modern Japan. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Today you're going to hear from Dr. Christopher Harding, a historian and author whose latest book explores the story of Japan's recent past. Our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorn, met up with him late last year to find out more. So today's podcast guest is Christopher Harding. Uh, Christopher is an academic based at the University of Edinburgh, and he specialises in Asian cultural history. His most recent book is Japan's Story in Search of a Nation, 1850 to the Present, which delves into Japanese culture over the last 160-odd years to reveal a nation that was grappling both with its own national identity and with the challenges of defining that identity despite an onslaught of dizzying modernisation. So, Christopher, why are the last 168 years we're at now um, of Japan's history so fascinating to study? Mm. Um, For me, it's this idea that you have this chance to recreate a nation, you know, to start again. I think a nation's national identity is always up for grabs to some extent. But at the beginning of this period, for reasons I'll talk about in a minute, Japan has the chance to almost press the reset button on its history and its culture. And it's just fascinating what it does with that opportunity. Uh, You know, so the, the period starts in 1853, Western warships start turning up off Japan's coast, asking for peace and friendship and trade, more or less at the point of a gun. 
Uh, these are the Americans and the British and the French and the Russians come along. Um, the Japanese are in a very difficult position. You think, well, how do we basically prevent ourselves from becoming next on colonialism's to-do list? You look across the water, you've got China being carved up, you've got India, all these other places under the yoke, as it were. And what they do is something amazing. In 1868, uh, you get a group of rebel samurai from the southwest of Japan who overthrow the shogun. This old regime been around for two and a half centuries in Edo, the city of Edo. They march this teenaged emperor from uh, his palace in Kyoto all the way to Edo, rename Edo as Tokyo, and they take this teenage emperor really as their figurehead for trying to bring the nation together, build it up as quickly as possible to prevent Japan basically uh, falling to the same fate as China. They have this slogan in Japanese, which is um, a rich nation and a strong army. This is where they want to begin. And what's fascinating is that they know they need a rich nation and a strong army, but they don't yet know what modernization with a Japanese flavor ought to be. Um, and one of the things I'm doing in the book is I'm looking at all the struggles, the really broad range of ideas that people come up with for what Japanese modernity should be. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about what some of the foundational myths of Japanese history are. So what the, what the kind of cornerstone of this national identity were seen to be. Mm. I think in the work for this book, I discovered two particular, as it were, stories about Japan, which have become incredibly influential. If you think back to um, 1868, 150th anniversary this year of this rebel coup, most people in Japan thought about themselves in terms of a regional identity. You know, so the language would be slightly different, the currency, the food, your local history, your local heroes, you know, you had your local samurai hierarchy. The new government faces the challenge of trying to persuade everyone to back its plan for Japan um, and to really accept the legitimacy of these new rulers who most people never heard of before. And so what they do is they create these two really powerful stories to try and bring people together. The first one is that if everyone just puts the effort in now for these really busy years after 1868, then Japan will become a beacon of modernity in Asia. You know, the first Asian country to modernize along Western lines, but done in the Japanese way. And we'll show the way for China, for Korea, for all these countries that seem to be doing rather badly. You know, uh, Japan will completely lead the way. And you see it all the way through, actually. I mean, we'll come on probably to these later periods. But the idea that Japan is a quintessentially modern, even ultra-modern place, you know, if you think about the Shinkansen, if you think about robots, um, the Tokyo Olympics in 2020, they're going to be the first to have um, facial recognition as a way of getting into a stadium, you know, for security reasons. So that image has stayed there. And it's part of how Japan thinks about itself. Really importantly, it's part of how the West has wanted to think about Japan. You know, if you think about the West in the late uh, 1800s, desperate to see their model of modernity do well elsewhere, because then it vindicates the idea that um, industry, science, a Western way of governing a society is the right way, you know, is a kind of universal human progress. So that if Japan is successfully modern, that actually makes the West look rather good because most of these structures are originally uh, born in the West. So that's one very powerful idea or story as I, I call them. The second is that Japan is a, a very special place, an exceptional place, blessed even perhaps by the gods. You know, one of the powerful things that these leaders do after 1868 is have the emperor as their figurehead, as a, um, a divine leader, a son, as it were, of God. He's part of a, a story that goes right back in this 
myth, this creation myth of Japan goes right back centuries and centuries to Japan being created as a special set of islands by the gods. And I wouldn't be saying that people necessarily literally believe this uh, in Japan, but nevertheless, the sense that Japan is different, is special, that it's not China, this is really important, Japan has so much that it takes from China for its culture, but it's always trying to distinguish itself from China. And that also, um, it isn't the West. Japanese modernization won't be a kind of facsimile of Western modernization, it'll be something special. So that idea about Japan being special also, I think, goes all the way to the present day. One simple example would be Japan's Prime Minister now, Abe Shinzo, is trying to persuade people in Japan to accept more immigration. Japan has a um, declining birth rate and ageing population. Uh, but people are quite resistant. And I think that isn't because Japanese are raging racist. It's because they've been told for a very long time that Japan is different, a little bit special, and that if you have too many new people coming in, what one Japanese journalist recently called public morality may be disturbed. So I think that's one legacy of this second very powerful story about Japan. You've already spoken a lot about the relationship between Japan and the West, mm. and something I found really interesting in the book is, um, is the way in which Japan both kind of was drawn towards and fought against the West. Could you give us an, an idea about when Japan was opened up to the West in the mid-19th century, what uh, massive cultural gulf it was, it was jumping across? Ah, great question, yes, thank you. I think what's so interesting about the Japanese case is that over a really short period of time, and we're talking just a few years, there is this enormous influx of brand new ideas from the West in science, in technology, in philosophy, religion, fashion, the arts. It all floods in. Um, and you have a really interesting transitional period where if you walk along some parts of um, this district called Ginza in uh, Tokyo, you can find people wearing a suit jacket over a kimono. Or you can find people with a flourish taking a gold pocket watch out of their pockets to consult the time so that everyone else uh, can see. You can find people with uh, lamb chopped sideburns. You can find people struggling to use a knife and fork, pushing their beef um, around the plate. Japan wasn't a big beef-eating country uh, before this point. Um, so you have all these funny uh, elements of experimentation. You also have, it has to be said, a rather snooty attitude from some of the Europeans who see what Japan is doing. Um, for example, building themselves fascinating buildings like the Rokumeikan in Tokyo, where Japanese can dress up in European ballroom finery and dance to European music. Um, and yes, yeah, some of the Europeans can be quite snooty. One French guy uh, described this Rokumeikan building as the kind of thing you might find in a second-rate French spa town. They basically thought the Japanese were a bit cheap. Uh, some of the cartoons and the art across this period are a fabulous way of getting into it, and I, I try and do that in the book. One of the cartoons in the book shows a couple of um, Japanese elites, a man and a woman, in front of their mirror, admiring themselves before they, you know, strut towards the ballroom in their European finery. And this French cartoonist draws the image in the mirror as two monkeys staring back dressed up like that. And there's obviously a real harsh tinge to that, that the Japanese will only ever be able to copy, imitate, and give us a kind of second-hand view of things. And it's funny, that idea actually about Japan, I think has probably lingered. You know, that, that, um, that relationship with the West has involved not very much imagination and a lot of simple imitational miniaturization, you know, when it comes to uh, Sony creating their Walkmans many decades later. But what I try and show in the book is actually the, the intelligence and the creativity with which 
Japanese people receive these Western ideas and say, we'll have that, we won't have that, we'll do that, but we'll do that in a different way. You know, for example, um, the Tokyo police force comes from Paris. They're based on the Paris police force, but Tokyo is a city where lots and lots of new people are coming in from the countryside and the authorities don't really trust them. And so the Japanese have a system of what they call korban, which is very small police boxes. You can only fit two people in them, really. Um, and they dot them across the city so that you can get hold of the police in an emergency if you need to very easily because they're almost on every street corner, street corner. But also the police can get hold of you if they don't like the look of you. And if you go to, people go to Tokyo now, they'll see those korban. And that's just an example of drawing from the West, but with a twist with something that's to Japan's benefit. And it's done so, as I say, so intelligently and so creatively. It's one of the things that, um, that I really love about the period. Possibly the most significant of um, Japan's relationship with the West is, is that with um, the United States, which comes back again and again and again throughout the book and, of course, throughout this period of history. Can you tell us about the impact that that relationship had on Japan's formative Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, strikingly, actually, I talked about the Americans turning up in their warships in the 1850s. Commodore Matthew C. Perry especially is remembered and he's pictured, I think we have the image in the book, as a kind of demonic type with a strange uh, nose and an odd beard and kind of frizzy hair. He looks terrifying. This is how people experience the States, the United States early on. At the, um, at the other end of this kind of first half, I suppose, of the modern period, which is the end of the, uh, the, end of the Second World War, 1945-46, um, you have the Tokyo War Crimes Tribunals in 46. One Japanese uh, officer, military officer on trial there says, you know, you blame us for this war, but this really started when Matthew C. Perry turned up on Japan's shores. There's a way of thinking about America um, or a story about America, which is, well, they came here, disturbed us, bothered us, bullied us really into having this relationship that's never been equal um, and we suffered as a result. There's a bit of kind of self-victimising um, there which I don't really uh, accept but there's that half of the relationship and then there's the second half which is fascinating because of course from 1945 to 52 Japan is under an American occupation. General Douglas MacArthur comes in and it's one of these lovely times I mean as a historian you feel vaguely gratified that um, MacArthur has to do this kind of um, job as an amateur historian you know, saying, we tried to open Japan up in the 1850s and 1860s, tried to give Japan our model, which we think is a good model, democracy, industry, all the rest of it. So what went wrong? You have to look and see, what, at what point did Japan step off the righteous path, as it were, and go down this terrible road um, to war? And on that basis, the Americans tried to really recreate Japan across this period, famously with a, um, a pacifist constitution, which means uh, the Japanese cannot have officially a military, they can't settle their affairs in military ways anymore. The education system is American, there's baseball, um, there's all sorts of elements of American culture that get into Japan. And one of the things I wanted to do in the book is look at how Although that's been quite successful in all sorts of ways, there has been a really powerful strand in Japan of disliking that and of trying to push back um, against it. So I suppose to give you one very brief example, the Americans leave in 52, the Japanese then have this uh, security relationship with the US. They're under the nuclear umbrella. This terrible, it's almost a kind of an irony, isn't it? Having been uh, hit by the nuclear arsenal, the very early arsenal of the United States, they're now under the umbrella. Um, but some critics say the Japanese pay a price for that. They can't have a truly independent foreign policy. But they also say um, that by the 1960s, critics in Japan worry that people have become addicted to American-style television, that all they really want in life is an American-style car, an American-style family where they have their fridge and their phone at home. And they've lost what 
the critics say was an opportunity in 1945 after this apocalyptic wiping of the slate, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, the firebombing of Tokyo, this chance to really start again, recreate the nation, rethink it, that that chance was lost. They've ended up with something which is uh, slightly right um, of centre politically. People are interested in their mortgages and their salary, men, lifestyles and all the rest of it. All these cliches about Japan, basically. And they're saying, how do we shape people out of this kind of complacency? You know, one of the things I really want to do in the book is show people just how radical some elements of Japanese culture have been. So to give you one example, the famous famous-ish playwright, not well-known here, Terayama Shuji, in the 1960s, he, he's terrified of people in front of their televisions, basically zonking out, slouching on their couches. And so he creates these performances where he will bully his audience, he will shout at them, he'll sometimes finish the play early so they can't see the ending. On one occasion, he set fire to the stage because he wanted to say to people, you lot need to wake up, basically. You really need to wake up, see what's happening to your country, and do something different. Let me give you one more brief example, because um, we all know and love Yoko Ono here. Well, it depends how you feel about the John Lennon relationship, but we all know Yoko Ono, at least. So in 1964, Tokyo has the Olympics for the first time. Um, and the government is saying, we need to clean up the streets. We need to stop weeing in the streets. They're paranoid that foreigners will see Japanese urinating in the street. We need to not honk our horns so loudly. And some performance art groups sort of satirize this. One called High Red Center in particular, and we used a, a, an image of theirs in, in the book. Um, they, they hive off a little portion of the pavement. They put up barriers and they dress in clinical lab coats and they brush the pavement with toothbrushes to say, yes, yes, we'll do everything you want. We'll be the kind of Japan that you want to be. Brutally satirizing this story. And where Yoko Ono comes in is the same year, the same group. They invite people to one of the big hotels in Tokyo. They put each person in the bath to uh, try and work out their mass. They fill their mouths with water to work out how much water their mouth holds. And then they take photographs of them from all sorts of different angles. And they build them what they call their personalized atomic fallout shelter. Um, and if you look at it, the different planes of wood that they put these, different planes of some kind of material that they put these photographs onto, when you work them together, what you've got is a coffin. And their point is that, you know, while people are enjoying their TVs, their holidays, all the rest of it, we are under threat of nuclear attack from the Soviet Union because we have American missile bases on our soil. And yet we're just getting on with it. You know, as though we could survive a nuclear attack, as though a little box is going to be anything more in the end than a coffin. They're surprised by the speed with which people forget what Japan's recently been through. And they're constantly trying to shake people up, basically. Picking up on that point about the concerns about modernization, mm. do you think the root of that is because modernization was equated to westernization? This is a question that the Japanese have struggled with the whole time. Yes, exactly. How do you distinguish modernization from westernization? One slogan early on, a lot of Japanese governance in the early days got done by slogans in the early modern days. Um, the slogan was uh, Western technology, Japanese spirit. That was the idea that you can separate out technology from spirit. In the end, they found that you couldn't. And the uh, right wing in Japan, the ultra-nationalists that come to prominence in the late 1920s, especially then in the 1930s, what they said basically is that modernity as a whole, as a concept, is a foreign import. Um, it's not something, it's not a natural stage that each country goes through. It's a foreign import. It's particular to Western culture. And we've made a mistake by taking it on in the way that we have. And we need to try and push back against it. 
And so you have an increasingly uh, xenophobic politics, which has its cultural side. So as the, as the days darken in Japan in the 30s, especially in the early 1940s, um, you can't have these beautiful urban dance halls anymore. You have to literally give back, hand in your jazz records uh, back to the people you bought them from. We interviewed actually for a documentary we did on, um, on Japan a little while back. We interviewed someone who was just getting into jazz in the early 40s. And he says he actually went to the guy at the, the music counter who'd had all these rec records given back and he managed to get them really cheaply. And he used to go up to his room at night, hide in his cupboard and listen to jazz during the war to try and get away with it. You know, so we should never get the idea that these policies really work and they really cover everybody. But there was really a sense that you can basically send modernity packing um, and do something else. I suppose one thing I'd really quickly add to that, although that rejection of, of Western-style modernity goes down a very, very dark path, there are all sorts of much more interesting and positive ways in which people, especially after the war, I think, have tried to rethink Japan's relationship with the West. So again, I mean, I really love the 1960s in Japan for all sorts of reasons, but one really interesting thing they try and do is they say, well, if so much of this complacency that we worry about in Japan is Western in origin, and they see the US as being the ultimate model of complacency because you have you have these terrible Cold War moments and yet people are slouched in front of quiz shows at home. Um, if that's the case then, can we have radical art, culture, film, all these things that actually are they're kind of avant-garde, but they're not simply based on the Western avant-garde. So they go right back to Japan's history before the West ever turned up, and they try and create radical avant-garde art rooted in those earlier moments. So to give you an example, there was a guy called Hijikata Tatsumi, um, who came from the northeast of Japan, and he lost two sisters during the war. One was sold off into prostitution, the other one died. Um, and that region of Japan has a really strong shamanic tradition, the idea that you can become possessed and you can communicate with the other world. He created a form of dance based on that, where you lather yourself in white paint, the stage is really dark, and you have these, these stark, jerky movements that you do, your eyes roll back in your head. At one point, he famously um, murdered a rooster live on stage by snapping its neck. That link of, of blood and animals and sacrifice, and all this kind of thing. An incredibly hard-hitting art form that he said is rooted in Japan's distant past, that somehow circumvents this troubling period of, of Western influence and does something deeper and more interesting. Another person tries to do avant-garde flower arranging, you know, rework this traditional Japanese art in a brand new way. It's tremendously creative. Um, and it's those sorts of elements of Japan that I just don't often see getting into the public consciousness here. And that's what the book is trying to do. Something I found really interesting um, in the book was this idea of um, using culture to rebrand Japan after mm. the war. This initiative of, you know, cool Japan yes. and also mm. beautiful Japan harking back to a kind of older rural idyll. Could you talk a bit about some of those ideas? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think if you, if you go back to the late 80s and early 1990s, Japan was going through a moment where um, people in China and people in Korea were more than ever talking about the war, saying Japan must apologize, Japan's crimes in Nanjing, or the comfort women infamously, this uh, sexual enslavement of Korean women for military brothels. There was a lot of that going on, and of course Japan you know, should reflect, as we all should on our histories, but what they tried to do, one thing they've tried to do to kind of put that sort of 
reputation of Japan to one side is to really officially sponsor um, anime and manga and um, computer games and Nintendo or Pokemon, whatever it might be, and say, really what Japan is about is about entrepreneurship and creativity and coolness. And I think people who grow up with Japan in the 1990s, it's people who grow up compared to people who grew up with it even a decade before, will have a completely different perception about what Japan is. From the earlier decade, it's about businessmen. Um, it's about these companies that are creating terrible trade deficits with the United States. You know, famously Donald Trump back in the 80s was terrified that Japan Japan was ruining the American economy. And then if you grew up in the 1990s or the early noughties, it's much more about pop culture. So anime, manga, I suppose also um, J-pop. And J uh, Japan's leaders have always been really clever at co-opting what they think are successful aspects of Japanese culture and almost claiming them for themselves. You know, Japan's politicians are famously crusty. Um, and so you find them now. Uh, one had his picture taken with Doraemon, one of these famous uh, children's TV characters um, in Japan. And Abe Shinzo, the prime minister, famously dressed up as Super Mario at the end of the Rio Olympics to try and plug the 2020 Olympics. So I think that creativity and that pop culture is great and it is there but there are two things one is it gets quite easily co-opted by politicians and i think people should be careful about getting what are in some ways officially sponsored versions of japan um, and the other thing is one thing that uh, critics within japan will say is that for some reason pop culture you know these things that we know about japan pop culture and politics have never seemed to bridge They've never seemed to mix, so that pop culture ends up being a place where you can imagine Japan in a different way. You can fantasize about an entirely different place, and you can enjoy that sort of escapism, a kind of catharsis. And then you get back on the train, and you go and work your 11 or 12 hour day, um, and you put up with the politicians uh, that you've been given. Um, there isn't this idea that the way people imagine how Japan could be within pop culture, whether it's a film or TV drama or something else, these beautiful programs that get made, there isn't the sense that those ideas can somehow become part of the political mainstream. One seems to be insulated from the other. And there was this really precious moment, just briefly, in 2011, after the terrible earthquake, tsunami and the nuclear meltdown, where it looked like a bridge might happen. There was a, a, a music video, an anonymous music video, that went viral in Japan just three weeks after Fukushima. Um, and it was a guy who did a cover, a cover version of a song by a very famous pop artist called Saito Kazuyoshi. But he changed the words to this song. Um, it was supposed to be, I always loved you. And he changed the title to It Was Always a Lie. And the lyrics become this incredibly hard-hitting vilification of the Japanese government and the nuclear industry saying, you told us nuclear power was safe. You told us it was the right thing for our country. Now we've got radiation clouds over God knows how much of Japan because you're not telling us the truth about how bad the radiation is. It's on the air. It's in the food. Who knows what's going to happen in Japan next? People have to wake up. Um, and it, it went viral, as I say. And people were thinking, well, the real Saito Kazuyoshi, who's song this originally was is surely going to sue because the idea was that in Japan your pop stars are entertainers and companions they don't give you political sermons punters don't want a sermon basically but in the end he didn't sue because he turned out to be the guy in the video he addressed himself up anonymously with a mask and a, and a trilby hat um, and he had done a protest version of his own song because he was fed up with the way things were going. And the reaction on social media was, thank God at last we've got someone from the pop industry who's actually going to talk about politics. So there is this appetite for bridging the two. And perhaps that's something that we'll see more of perhaps in the future.
We've spoken in passing um, about the war and the impact um, that it had on Japan, but I wonder whether you could just hone in a bit more on how defining the Second World War was in how Japan sees its own history and also how it was seen by everyone else. Mm. I suppose one of the really big issues for Japan now is its relationship with China uh, and Korea for the reasons that we just spoke about. There's always this call for the Japanese to reflect on that war. Um, but what's really interesting is that if you look actually at the relationship between Japan and China since the war, the memory of that war in that relationship is switched on and switched off by the Chinese, by Koreans and others, as kind of pragmatic need dictates. So um, I'll give you a line that was once said, this was said in the early 1950s, to some Japanese uh, politicians. You can't be asked to apologize all the time, can you? It's not good to feel guilty all the time. And you know who said that? That was Chairman Mao saying that, these Japanese politicians visiting China, because what he wanted was Japanese investment in China. What he wanted was to prize the Japanese away from the Americans a little bit in Asia for his own purposes. And he didn't want to talk about the war. He said, that's something for another day, you know. But depending on what China needs, on what Korea needs, and on what Japan needs as well, that memory gets switched on and switched off um, remarkably effectively. So I think that's one, um, that's one aspect of it from the outsider's point of view, from the Korean and Chinese point of view. From the Japanese point of view, I'd say a couple of things. One is you see a great commitment in Japan after the war to pacifism. People are aware at the time, maybe less so now, they're aware of just how much the average person did support the military, certainly in the early years, probably before Pearl Harbor and before they became aware of the terrible crimes committed by some soldiers, many soldiers on the, um, on, on the uh, Asian continent. And so after the war, they're really, really committed to pacifism. And even as you get even just a few years ago, whenever there's a march against the idea of changing Japan's pacifist constitution, it's often people from that generation who march because they never, ever want to see Japan go back. It's, an, it's a powerful, indelible memory. But I think there's another strand there, which is the sense among some in Japan that in some ways the Japanese were victims in that war, that that was a war the Japanese started, but were almost forced to start because they were being encircled in Asia. If you think about a map of Asia at this time, um, across to the west, you've got China. Uh, above that, you've got Russia. Around to the other side, you've got the Americans with their Pacific bases. Further around the clock, as it were, you've got the British, the Dutch, the French in Southeast Asia. There's a sense of being encircled and a sense of needing at some point somehow to break out of that if Japan is not going to be strangled, you know, for its raw materials um, so that it can basically survive and not be uh, gobbled up in what is a, you know, a, a terrifying time in the 20th century. And then, of course, the use of atomic weapons against Japan at Hiroshima and then against uh, the Nagasaki, and also the firebombing of Tokyo in which 100,000 people died in the most terrifying conditions. The difficulty with that is that that victimization narrative, I think, can stop people reflecting a little bit more on the war and on the causes of that war. It's still the case now, at least in some Japanese schools, people tell me that Japanese history is taught as a kind of single chronological narrative so that, and just in some schools at least, I hear this, so that when you get to the 1930s, suddenly, miraculously, it's the end of the academic year and you can't talk about that period. Or you've got to cover it very briefly um, and then suddenly you move on, which I find fascinating. 
But at the same time, it always makes me think that there does tend to be some Western finger-wagging about this. Oh, the Japanese, have they reflected? Have they apologised? Um, yes, it's worth talking about that. It's also worth talking about our own history. Um, because, and I've heard that this still goes on in some schools now, when I was at school studying British history, we went from the Tudors straight to the First World War. And suddenly people from India, from Canada, from Australia were turning up on our side to fight for us. I was thinking, really decent of them to do that. You know, you shouldn't have. Um, no idea uh, of the British imperial background to all that. You know, some historians now in Japan will say, if we can think about the Second World War, at least in part, as an imperial war, as a war between empires, British Empire, a Japanese Empire, and talk about what that means more broadly, then it becomes easier for people in Japan to reflect. Because I'll tell you how people in Japan feel, they, they feel that it's always and only the Japanese who are asked to apologise or feel bad or reflect more. And they see some double standards there. And I think to an extent they have a point. We're talking about these national stories, this idea of national identity. Mm. I don't know whether it is as simple as this, but overall in this period of Japanese history, have those ideas, they might be inevitable, but have they done more harm than good? That's a great question. Um, so those two ideas that we started out um, talking about, they are remarkably successful, I think, for a few years. We will talk about whether they're ultimately a good thing or not, perhaps in a second, as far as I can. I try and stay away from kind of the historian's crystal ballery, and it's quite hard to know. But just one very brief example of how successful they were. The emperor story, the story that the emperor is naturally at the heart of the Japanese community, which they tell early on. Most people, when they told that story uh, in the late 1860s, I think they spent something like a fifth of the entire national budget in, 19, in 1868 just on PR exercises for the emperor, touring him around the country, handing out free gifts, handing out sake to people to celebrate, to try and get them to connect with the emperor. Some people, when the emperor would come past in his palanquin, would say, that's not the emperor, that's just some guy fooling around, he's having us on. Or they would say, it might be the emperor, but we don't care. We don't have any relationship with him. But then when he dies in 1912, you find outside the Imperial Palace in Tokyo, people on their knees, throngs of them crying and praying and having invested so deeply in this idea of who the emperor is. And it's, I talk about these things as stories and to an extent they are, but the emperor means something to people at this point and that's real. And it's tremendously effective in persuading people to unite. It gives them a figurehead, it gives them a symbol, it gives them a story. And Japan's rise um, in just, what, 30 or so years to become genuinely a top tier nation in the world, famously vanquishing the Russians in a war in 1905, is incredible. It's meteoric. So I think it is quite successful. Unfortunately, both of those stories turn sour um, when we get on that road towards the war. It's very difficult for people to offer political alternatives in Japan, to offer some kind of resistance. So for example, in 1910, a couple of years before the emperor dies, there's an attempt to assassinate him, to throw bombs at him basically and kill him, because people say his presence is actually corrosive because our constitution at this point is a gift from the emperor. Our rights aren't natural, they're a present from the emperor and they can be taken back at any time. So there's a strong authoritarian strand in Japanese politics that comes with that story that is perhaps a, a corrosive result of it. A post-war thought on these two stories, I mean again Japan takes off rapidly after the war as we all know and part of it is this sense of being a single community and fighting for something that's worth fighting for, seeing Japan do well. It's incredibly successful in those terms, but 
Now in Japan, you have people, for example, in the far north, the Ainu people of Japan who see themselves as an indigenous people of Japan, separate from you know, in, in terms of their, their heritage from people on the mainland. You have people in the far south in Okinawa who haven't traditionally been part of Japan, only brought into Japan in the late 1870s. You have Korean people, Chinese people living in Japan. What they want to say is Japan is, of course, one single country, but it isn't one race. It, they aren't ethnically homogenous. We should be able to tell a story about Japan as a place which is united and yet at the same time diverse. And I think it's been really hard for the Japanese government and for mainstream political opinion in Japan to accept the idea or to present to the world the idea that Japan is a diverse place. What's fascinating is the 2020 Olympics, you know you have these kind of vaguely banal mottos that come up every time at the Olympics. I mean, there are three for um, Tokyo 2020. I mean, one is one is connecting to tomorrow, whatever that means. The other one is so unimportant, I've forgotten it. But the third one is really interesting. Unity in diversity. Now, I think that's mainly for international consumption, but there are people in Japan who would like to leverage that slogan and say, yes, that's exactly what Japan is. We have, or could have, unity in diversity. And the big question is, in 2020, when the eyes of the world are on Japan, can these critics, these internal critics in Japan, use that slogan and use that opportunity to almost shame or embarrass their leaders into accepting and promoting that view of Japan, which they've been pretty sheepish about doing up till now. So finally, if you um, were able to convey one message very, very clearly to your readers about this period of Japan's history, what mm. would that be? It would probably be look harder. Because I think lots of the images we have on Japan, if you do a Google image search now for Japan, you'll see the same old images, geisha, samurai, temples, all the rest of it, that were there 30 years ago. I love all those things. They're all great. But Japan has been so much more. And that's what the book is all about, trying to give a much broader impression of the country. And I hope the book will help people look harder and enjoy this huge breadth, this huge creative breadth in Japan, which I think over here we haven't always been able to appreciate. That was Christopher Harding. Japan's Story in Search of a Nation, 1850 to the Present, is out now, published by Alan Lane. And you can find out more about Christopher's work at christopher-harding.com. And that is about all for today. But do tune in next Monday when I'll be speaking to Richard J. Evans about the historian Eric Hobsbawm. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.